Hello and welcome back to Level Zero Literacy. My name is Mason and I am so excited to bring you our episode on the beloved classic RPG Fallout. During the episode, we are going to spoil the game from beginning to end and we're going to cover topics that include, but are not limited to, religion, cannibalism, the apocalypse, and eugenics. So please use your best judgment before proceeding and enjoy. Hello and welcome back to Level Zero Literacy. My name is Mason. I am here with my beautiful co-hosts, Buck. War never changes. And Sam? I nuked the entire western coast of the United States. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Today we are talking about <laughs> Fallout, a post-nuclear role-playing game. A 1997 CRPG brought to you by Interplay Productions, uh, produced by Tim Kane and designed by Scott Campbell and Christopher Taylor. Instead of our normal introduction, I want to tell a quick story. This story is about a party I was at not too long ago, less than a year ago, where I was talking to just a fellow. It was the first time I had ever met him. And this guy was a repairman for UPS trucks. And I quickly learned that this guy was like, Kind of a kooky conspiracy theorist type. And the conversation kind of quickly devolved into him telling me all his plans for when the world inevitably goes belly up, when all of our financial systems and societies collapse, and how he's going to hunker down in his bunker that he has on his property with his wife. And they're going to have nine kids, and they're going to be self subsistent it was then that i realized that like a lot of people and i mean a lot of like even people that we would consider to be normally socially well-adjusted people think that this is a viable way to think about what the world would be like after the end of the world after the apocalypse Mm -hmm. yeah fallout is a game I believe that is about community and power and influence and violence and how all those things interact and cause friction with one another in the end of the world, in this sort of imagined post-apocalyptic scenario, a kind of meditation on what human society will be like, on what human conflict will be like. In a world without a government or a state or some kind of overarching institution that sort of transcends these small enclaves of ideologically different people. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? I think that that is correct. I also think that like... See, the, the the post-apocalypse of Fallout has always really resonated with me, right? Like, ever ever since I played Fallout 3, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah, America really sucks. Or more specifically, capitalism and its violent, oppressive power really sucks. Because that's really what, like, the culminating apocalyptic event of Fallout is, right? Yeah. It is China and America vying way too hard for each other 
and then ending the world over it. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I think, so I want to immediately uh, go into weird, obscure lore that's hard to figure out about this game to go with uh, what you were saying with that. Because I'll I'll ask you all a question. What happened to the people in Vault 15? Do you know? Yeah, you you do know. So the people of Vault 15... Uh, God, this is explains. The people of Vault 15 end up becoming the three Raider f- factions. Yep. And um, the people of Shady Shades. And the people. Yep. So, yeah, essentially there was a <laughs> mutiny in Vault 15 that ended up destroying the whole facility, like destroying the facility as we see it. And then the people that were vying for power break off into the into the raider factions, the three raider factions that we see in this game. Well, and we we only actually see yeah, like we see yeah, we you, hear about three. You hear about three, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the three factions that we know about, and then the more peaceful kind of descendants of Vault Fifteen become the inhabitants of Shady Sands, and the leader of Shady Sands is a first generation descendant right he, he came out of the vault. he came yeah he was in the he vault. was a vault devoted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah so that's what that's what we know of the fate of fall fall 15 it's it most of that and, stuff is like pretty buried you kind of have to dig yeah. for it in it, in the game but that's like the the fate and i think that's like a great little microcosm of everything you just mentioned mason right is like you know you have an apocalypse happen it is mentioned somewhere, I think, in the Fallout Bible that Vault 15's experiment was... Oh, I, I, how much Fallout lore should we assume our listeners know? All of it. <laughs> I mean, this no, is our podcast, okay. right? Yeah. We can talk about anything we want. Well, yeah. The reason I ask that is, like, if someone's never done anything with Fallout, they like a base piece of information is every vault had an experiment effectively a social experiment yeah and vault 15 social experiment was what if we got a whole bunch of people from a bunch of different backgrounds and shove them into one place what would happen just just no cultural cohesion yeah and you know it went about as well as one might predict yeah and you know i think it's pretty impressive that Eridesh managed to even build a community in the first place, right? Like with the fact that there are three warring factions and uh, they still managed to actually build something. I think that's impressive. And like a not as bleak outlook. I, I think I think that's one thing that isn't like really looked at when people look at Fallout, but Fallout isn't just bleak. Right. Right? Like, Fallout has a lot of hope built into it, even in the nightmare hellscape of the nuclear wasteland. I think even the negative, in quotes, aspects of Fallout have a lot of positive aspects to them. When you look at the Raiders society, it's not as if the Raiders are, like, just these bloodthirsty, cutthroat people. They are. They just believe that the actions they have to take to survive involve gathering the, in air quotes, excess resources of the communities that surround them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but 
in that the Raiders take very good care of each other. Like that community, for as much as they torment the other communities around them, they take very good care of each other. You know, you walk into that Raider camp and no the, one, no one attacks you. Yeah, the way they talk, and even like the way the Raiders talk about each other, right, is very like. You know, you can see the chemistry and the cohesion between the people that live there. It's it's such a cool world that they that Tim Kane, I, I suppose, has imagined. the The end of the world is like this distant thing, and it left it a giant scar on the planet. However, people still try to cobble together like a sort of comfortable and predictable life. That's like really all any of the NPCs want in the game is to sort of just just live comfortably. Even the ones that are trying to do these like big, you know, power grabs and like have these like ideological movements are just trying to sort of reconquer nature so that they can sort of recapture what mankind once had. I also think, and this is completely different from the first thing I said, but I think this is a very dense and complicated piece of fiction. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think that <laughs> Fallout is a game about um, sort of coming to a- coming to age and realizing the horrors of the world that exist, not not sort of in this fictional realm but like in the real world that there are people who believe that might makes right and will exploit you and hurt you and that you will someday like lose your ability to go back to your home you're going to have to strike out into the world and be able to find your place within it that there's going to be crisis and there's going to be people who try to make you a part of something bigger, that there's going to be people who try to abuse your trust or wrong you, and that it's your job and your responsibility ultimately to navigate that imperfect world. If no other reason, then no one is going to do it for you. Is it ever really, is it ever explained what the social experiment of Vault 13 is? From what I was seeing... It was said, what if you lock up a vault for 200 years? Yeah. Because I almost wonder if, if it was, it was there's a part of it that's like, every once in a while, this is a vault that's going to have to send one person out to the wilderness. And like, how long can they keep up doing that without the other people in the vault demanding they leave, get to leave? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you're, you, your character is not even the first person to have to leave Vault 13, right? Right. There is at least two other instances of people you meet, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. I can remember, People leaving too. before you. So I just think that I just wonder if that was like a part of it or not. My, the thing that I struggle with the most in, in this game is that the character work for the first like half of this game is really not all that outstanding yeah the character writing is like very flat and one-dimensional and i really struggled because because the world building in fallout is like far and away 
some of the best in any game we've probably played for this podcast so far. It's really not close. But to get to the the juice, the squeeze, the really in-depth parts of this game, you have to get past all these very not super interactive on the surface characters. You know, you get glimpses of it with Aradesh. Like, Aradesh has a couple of lines that really are quite impressive and, like, interesting and give you a lot of looks into, like, his life. But, like, when I talked to, was Tanya, his daughter? Tandy. Tandy. She's just, like, it's just, like, repeating a, a few of the same phrases and lines, like, or, like, bits of phrase over and over again. I, I just, it, it wore me down. But, like, then you meet characters like Set, yeah, and the master, the master, and you know or some of the some of the leaders of the political factions. The 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 conflict happening in the boneyard. Yeah, yeah. Oh. there's like lots of good stuff, but you have to get over this like this it, big uphill battle of just dryness. It's it's all in the watership. I think that the like a what is going to turn a lot of people away from this game is the entire water chip which is like the first half of the game yeah <laughs> because not only do you have this time you know quote unquote time constraint you have a ton of time but it's still like kind of imposing but then like also because it exists to make you powerful enough to get to the latter half of the game there's all this like very very opaquely game designy type stuff that kind of is immersion breaking yeah to in my mind yeah you know like, you like when i think about the quests that you do in shady like it it literally feels like they're building blocks yeah in like a really obvious way of like the quest structure of shady sands to the quest structure of junk town to the quest structure of like the hub and beyond that because after the hub you kind of figure out what to do about the water chip every time i start this game i have to i have to like deep sigh because i'm like it's it gets good at junk town <laughs> it's like <laughs> i have to get through shady sands all this is like kind of boring and doesn't make a lot of sense but like once you get to junk town it really is it gets good so like i i've got a question for you on that then. yeah how good do you think it gets at junk town i think the um I think the storyline between Killian and Gizmo is really interesting and so really good. My frustration is I missed a lot of like the cultural stuff of Junktown because I didn't really understand what was going on when I went there. Effectively, like I went there, I talked to a couple folks I didn't really explore because they were like, go talk to Killian. I go talk to Killian. Killian tries to get assassinated. I'm like, oh, this is bad. Okay, let's stop Gizmo. And doing that takes away a lot of, like, the stuff that you get from exploring. Like, there's a whole set of things about... It, there, uh, Gizmo's gang is called the Skulls, right? Yeah. There's a whole set of, like, things about the Skulls that you can get to happen if you just go to the bar and like have a drink and like this like actual like 
cutscene-ish thing happens at the bar regarding the skulls and the bartender. One of the skulls, like, punches the waitress lady, and Neil just shoots the dude. (laughs) But, like, I missed out on all of that. Because I went to Killian, that assassination thing happened. I took the wire with me to go talk to Gizmo. I went back to, like, I literally just sided with Killian and just went through it. I see. Instead of getting to, like, really engage with what was going on in Junktown. And I think, I th- I mean, that's what I, that's pretty much what I did too, right? I think that, like, as a player, that's just your first intuition is just to, like, snap off doing that because you see someone try to, do a political assassination you're like okay i need to stop the like why why am i gonna like uh you know why am i gonna not do this you know yeah this is it's it's a little bit counterintuitive absolutely but you know fallout is a game that's going to reward you for kind of kind of stopping to smell the roses whenever you're able if you take the opportunity to kind of stop and, and explore Junktown and think about what's happening, you, you kind of get this really cool dynamic where it's like Killian is the owner of the only store in town and also the head of the cops. So he's got this kind of, he you know, he runs the town exactly how he wants it, which is, you know, in the real world, like we would be like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Like this guy's got like too much. But, you know, Gizmo is just this, like, straightforwardly evil guy. Yeah. So it's like... <laughs> he looks evil. Yeah. Have you looked at Gizmo? Gizmo looks he evil. He looks like a huge motherfucker. He looks evil. He scowls, and he sits he's behind a, his desk. He's very... Jowl. uh, yeah, jowls. He's, he's very Everard-coded. Yeah, very Everard-coded. <laughs> like, if Everard was just, like, outwardly evil, he would basically just be Gizmo. <laughs> oh. But, yeah, it's like Gizmo... You know, d- he runs a casino and the casino's taking advantage of the people in the town because, of course, it is. But he doesn't assert this control over the town that Killian does. Yeah. Well, and- I mean, not, not. He is economically exploiting the lower, like, the people of Junktown, though. Yeah. In yes. a different way with a similar kind of power. It's just, it's a different kind of law, right? Also, Gizmo is a child predator, so. Oh, I didn't get that. Oh, yeah, so if you save the prostitute, so if you stay at the hotel overnight. I did this, I did the, did you do? The hostage situation? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so you can talk to her. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, Gizmo's got me, and he's got some girls and some kids. I see. So it's like, I I heard through my research that they wanted to make Killian out to be worse, but ran out of time. I believe that. And I think that would have been like a... Like, what I, what I heard they wanted, this is speculation, what I heard they wanted was they wanted Killian to come off more like exactly what you're describing him as, mm-hmm. but, like, they lost the time to execute that, and they went with an ending that was a little bit more happier if you choose to side with Killian, just because, like, they 
didn't have time to flesh it out more. Also, like, you probably would never... Like, they'd have to give you a reason to actually go back to Junktown later in the game if they if they wanted you to feel the effects of that. And, and there's like, not, there's no reason. There's just like, there's nothing it, there. I don't think, I don't think that in this game they could have made a compelling reason to go back. Yeah. Well, nobody took over Gizmo's stuff after Gizmo left, right? Yeah. That's like, yeah. It, <laughs> that would, so, that would be like the best thing they could come up with is like a, someone fills in Gizmo's shoes and now there's like a different tension, but like, I don't know, maybe, may, maybe you could have it that like Killian like had some, had like a, puppets to just like shove into gizmo's place after he was gone was like, maybe oh, you go you back and maybe you go back and killian's like yeah i'm i run the casino now yeah. people wanted a casino and i run the casino and the store and i'm the mayor and the sheriff like I just i do ever do everything yeah no one no one everyone loves me you know it's but like you feel you definitely feel that constraint of like this being a not, I don't want to say a rush project. They had three years, but definitely like not enough resources to sort of realize everything in the game. You feel that in a lot of places. Well, I think you feel it most in the later parts of the game where at some points you're getting some of the most deep, interesting lore you can find. Like going into the glow is, in my opinion, easily the highlight of the game. Yeah, I it's love the glow. Um, it's not my favorite area though like exploring that vault area which i didn't get to finish it because i was slightly under leveled when i went and those robots are strong yeah you gotta turn them off yeah they're motherfuckers (laughs) and i couldn't really get them to uh, so were y'all playing the version with the cut content in it i was if that's the version that's on Steam, then yeah. No. Well, it's there's a the, there's a there's a mod you can download called Fallout Fixed. Because the turning off the robots is cut content. Yep. I I did it, but that's because I've completed the game vanilla like three times before this. So I was like, oh, I'll do the cut content and just see if it's wildly different. And it's a lot of at least the version I played was called Fallout Fixed. And the type of installation I chose was like a lot of quality of life and then like not super story related stuff. And k- turning off the robots was one of the things I could do. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh my God. This <laughs> <laughs> is so good. Finding like the FEV information and like that puzzle, the, the puzzle. I put in quotes of understanding the different security levels with like looking at the people's like security yeah the card on the the door yeah with with the security color clearance information you can get from the computer like all that stuff is super cool and interesting and then you go to places like the followers of the apocalypse and a lot of the hub where the game is unfinished in those places oh yeah and like the quests for finishing those areas are not in the game (laughs) yep and it's like it's a little bit painful narratively to me uh, because i didn't even know this because like i got bad endings for the followers in the hub that you have to get bad endings for the followers in the hub in the normal version of the game because the good endings are cut content (laughs) Yep. <laughs> it's wild, right? And like I just wish they had more time 
to flesh this out because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to say this until I finished the game. I like this game more than Fallout 3. Yeah. And I was a teenager when I played Fallout 3 and I really enjoyed it. And like, I've always been unsure about the folks that are like, man, Fallout 3 is not good. Fallout 1's where it's at. Because every other time I've tried to play Fallout, I've been like, ooh, this is a lift. Yeah. But like, <laughs> the the real like old school Fallout experience, I think most people would say is Fallout 2. Because that's when they had like a real budget and resources. But like, this is like, this is sort of acquired reading. Yeah. Well, there's so much of Fallout here, right? Yeah, yeah, like, which is crazy. When, when you watch that intro cutscene and you see the dudes in power armor you're supposed to see as good guys. And they just murk they a just dude. They just murk a dude and then wave at the cameraman. And then you see the Corvette at $200,000. 300000 It's like, it's like... <laughs> What is it? It's like 800 horsepower, yeah. zero to 60 in half a second, and then it zooms out a little bit, and then it's just like a ruined yeah. Los Angeles behind it, and you're like, what? It, what happened? Like, like this, like Fallout knew exactly what it was. They, yeah, they had a focused, they had a focused <laughs> vision, which is amazing, because like this, it, it would have been so easy for this game to not stick the landing. Luckily, they were just... They were programming like the rent was due on this one, <laughs> yeah. and you could tell, and because it, it's it's just genuinely amazing. One of my one of my one of the tidbits of information I share with you too is that for this game, they added the partners late, the companions late, so they couldn't code them. They had to script them, and that's why your companions end up doing really stupid things sometimes, like dog meat just running through a river of radioactive waste. <laughs> it's so funny. For no reason. All like, of dog, dog meat just used the bridge as a bridge. He's like, ah, I don't think <laughs> he so. He uses the bridge like 10% of the time, yeah. which is the, so frustrating because it's like, I know there's a way to get you to use yeah, the bridge. You have, you have to manipulate the script in exactly the right way. All, all of my companions ended up dead, and I took that as the canon ending of, I mean, they were doing something real dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It- <laughs> They're very that happens, expendable. That happens every run. <laughs> I have never gotten a run where I've gotten companions to the end. Because like even if you can get them through the like boneyard, like the regulators fight usually kills them, and the deathclaw fight usually kills them. Even if you can get them through all that, the military base is like definitely gonna kill it's, them. It's there's no way. They can't. They can't make it through the military base. Lou Lieutenant is like that that fight takes like 15 minutes by itself depending on how you play it yeah and and that's and lieutenant comes with a second not even the boss dude who just has a rocket launcher which is like one of the most overpowered weapons in the game that's not even lou who has that that's the second hardest guy in the fight has the rocket launcher my favorite area in this game is the necropolis that is that place is so cool I think I think the the tension of the ghouls and like the ghoul society is the coolest. My my pick for the my favorite like thing in this game because I just it's it's a there's a very close second behind them in the Brotherhood of Steel, but but I think but it, but I like both of them for very similar reasons where the ghouls are just a society of people that are forced to survive by circumstance 
and forced to be like these horrible they're playing their part you know they're outcasts of society people are terrified of them you know partially rightfully so and so like i to me it was always like oh set is having to lean into this life that was basically thrust upon him because the rest of society is just never going to accept the ghouls for who they are despite the fact that they are still mostly functional you know quote unquote human people you know shout it's out, very tragic shout out to ghouls being like the most realistic depiction of humans forced to live in human lengths of time yeah right like yeah <laughs> A lot of them are just like, oh, I'm just trying to make it another day, dude. <laughs> and I think, and, and the, the the most tragic thing about that area is if you go back later, the mutants kill everyone. Yep. Which is like, that's not, when I started this game, that was not, and like based off of the first like number of things that happened, I, I never expected to like go back to an area later and it be so completely upended from where it started. You know, like, when you leave Shady Sands, Tandy gets kidnapped by the Raiders, and, like, when you leave other areas, like, small things change, but, like, that is a fundamental difference to the, like... Did you know that you can save them? Yeah. Yeah. But, like... It's very hard. Yeah, killing mutants at the point where you can save the ghouls... (laughs) <laughs> it's it, it, ridiculously it is difficult it's actually not hard. very hard i did it the way you get them to not get killed by mutants is to not go back okay well <laughs> but i'm gonna go back so there's a there's a second way that doesn't involve killing all the mutants are you sure Beca- yes b- because it's on a well it's on a it's on a time limit yeah that's what i'm saying okay yeah so there's a second way to get them to not kill the mutants or the, get the mutants to not kill the ghouls, and it's you finish the game before March. Well, well, it it so it's so it's thirty days from when you first step foot in Necropolis is the attack. Is, oh, I guess in my fixed version, Fallout Fix, there's a oh yeah yeah there's a cutoff date. Oh. It's like March. Oh, let of me twenty two oh seven or something. Let me tell y'all something. Um, in the original version of Fallout. The way it worked was as days passed, mutants would attack everything. Yes. You had 500 days to beat the game, or your vault was just attacked anyway. I think that would have been... Do I think that would have been an improvement? I think it makes a lot of things in the later half of the game more interesting when you're like... Do I take 21 days to get a surgery to make my perception 10? <laughs> yeah. When I'm like th- when I'm only 200 days. I think I think this game does hurt itself a lot by there being this like very for a first time player. I think this game hurts itself by a, a lot by having this very strict time limit in the first half of the game and then having no real sense of time in the second half of the game. I feel like there's nothing to ground the player into the importance of what's going on around them when there's no stakes as far as time. Because realistically, I would say the threat in the mutants is just as important as the water chip in reality. 
but it's not played that way. Well, and and like that that's an interesting thing to question, right? Is why does it matter if you fail to get the water chip? Well, and then, so, God, this is a, this is another thing I was going to bring up. So there's a whole thing where if you go back to Vault 13, there is a subsect of the vault that is actively trying to leave, and they they meet every day at I think it was like five or six p.m. or whatever. And there's a leader, and the leader's like, "Hey, make sure you guys are doing your training exercises," and basically all of your dialogue options were to dissuade them from leaving. And I hated that because I, w- I genuinely think like the best future for the people that, and I, you know, if, if indeed the social experiment is what if people were in a vault for 200 years, obviously the overseer is supposed to keep everyone or as many people as possible inside the vault. But like, I, it, and I'm sure this was a result of restrictions of time and game development and all that stuff. But like, I really wish and when I talked to Mason early on about like the direction I thought the game was going, I really wish there was a way that you or an ending even where you as vault as the person who left the vault could lead everyone else in your vault out into salvation in the wasteland. Well, you can kill the overseer. Yeah, but like <laughs> I mean I don't, I, I don't like that as a solution. If it makes the overseer is kind of a motherfucker, though. It, yeah, he like, is. <laughs> it, why? Why am I allowed to literally convince? And I'm skipping out a little bit here. But why am I literally allowed to convince the master to kill himself? But I can't convince the overseer that life in the vault is not, or like even even to a degree, like life in the vault is not the right thing for a majority of these people. So can I? I can I can answer that question. So have you ever? Um, what's a good example? Have you ever seen that like? post that people make fun of all the time about disco elysium where people are like why can't i side with the mercenary group and it's like you why would you, you, you have to like yeah, it's like you have to take into account what the motivations of the main character are and i know it's a role-playing game and you're supposed to be able to have some of those yourself but the events of the game don't make sense if at the very least the vault dweller doesn't want to sort of maintain his home, maintain yeah. the yeah, vault yeah, yeah. as it is. For sure. And like That's, maintain that way of life. If, so like that has to be that has to be just a fundamental premise of like what the character is like. That's the only one, but that that has to be in place. And I mean that makes so that makes sense to me. Be, and you know, I didn't really think about it that way and like you have to say it because well, you don't have to say it. I could have been more intelligent, but <laughs> I, I, I get. What I mean, but you know. like, since the vault dweller has no voice besides what you say, it it is. I needed to take a step back and think about. Oh yeah, like the vault dweller really wants to help his community that he grew up in, and I reckon he was trained to leave, and, and like all his loved ones are yeah. there, and <laughs> presumably your family. You don't see those people, but I think all, uh, not all of, but all of the, all of the interesting conflict in this game. And it makes sense given the genre of the game is this struggle between the meek and the mighty, the many weak people and the few that have power and influence and ammo and, you know, physical prowess and how 
you I mean you as the player can choose to side with the mutants if you want or side with set the the ghoul as opposed to the sort of undercity ghouls or you know now, be in the under the underground of the hub uh, so I've got a question how would that work I didn't actually interact with set and I didn't really see because like I thought set was just letting the underground people live anyway yeah he was yeah the the set I think is a victim of the kind of cut content or you know tight deadline kind of thing because you can go talk to him and he'll be like all right i'll pay you big money if you go kill the mutants and then you kill the mutants and you go back and he's like okay here's five nuka cola (laughs) and a hunting rifle yeah and you're like that's this is are you insane and then they just all attack you (laughs) i think there was supposed to be more there because set got a whole talking head and you know all this all this stuff well there could be it could be more complicated and i just haven't you know done ask me about for the correct stuff but that's all i've ever god don't even get me started ask ask me about it's a brutal system (laughs) i i didn't interact with it at all it's so bad you literally just go to every character and you go ask me about and then you type in about like the six things that you master, learned in that city. Mutant. Yeah, master mutant. Blades. You know, and regulators. Shady, and Shady Sand, you go like Raiders, Cons, Rad Scorpions, Vault 13, yeah. Vault 15. And it's just like, <laughs> this is awful. And they all and say like, the same things. It's a product of its time. So I'm not going to like hold that against it, you know, but it God, was it probably. Is, it was probably crazy innovative for the time to be like, hold on, they have like more dialogue and I have to like find something out and prompt them. But in in practice, it's like, oh, okay, this uh, this random dude out in the middle of Junktown knows something um, about this guy in the hub and I got to ask him about it before I can. It's like, ugh, it's gross. So like, you know, what's weird to me what's about that? this is like I th- I think the two factions I side with the most are theoretically two of the most powerful, but they are n- they don't have really much ambition beyond their power. So like obviously I already talked about the ghouls and the ghouls are very powerful. They would be one of the most powerful factions if it were not for the mutants. And the second faction that I I find myself siding with the most is the Brotherhood of Steel. And neither of those factions really have much ambition beyond just surviving another day. Like literally the leader of the Brotherhood of Steel is like, yeah, we're just trying to survive. That's like all we're doing. You know, we're not worried about like taking control or, you know, like specifically withholding the peace. We're just trying to like make it, you know. I think the Brotherhood of Steel was really heavily influenced by like the Jedi in Star Wars. Yeah, Because they're this like reclusive little enclave of like hyper powerful people that have their own philosophies, but don't like, you know, with exceptions, they don't try to like impose their will on other people and they trade with the outside world. And they sometimes have like agents that are kind of out and about, but you know, they also sometimes are just like, Oh yeah, we're going to put all the technology and we're going to lock it away in here. And our guys are going to be the only one who get it. And if you try and stop us, we're going to shoot you full of holes. And they're, and they're, and they're, if you understand like the, 
backstory of the founding of the Brotherhood of Steel and like all that stuff makes a lot of sense. Yeah, of course. You know? It's like, which oh is, yeah, they which we, is really the last time we had technology, we ruined everything. Yeah. So we got to No, yeah. Uh, and like you you know you you say that and like I've never even really liked the Brotherhood. I love like, Brotherhood. Except, like, except for this. Yeah. I love the Brotherhood in this. And but that's in, my understanding is like the Brotherhood is like people that love the Brotherhood of Steel love them because of their depiction of Fallout 1 and not because of how they turned out in any of the other games. In, in 3 and 4, they're like a shadow of... They have no philosophical anything. They're like basically the Avengers. Yeah. They're like so different. <laughs> and And, you know, it's funny... So the way the Brotherhood works is, I don't even know how this happens, but if... Rhombus? Rhombus. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't think we'd talk about Rhombus. We're talking about if, old Mr. Krabs? Well, yeah. well, the thing is, is if he dies, I don't know how he would die. If he dies, the Brotherhood become like weird, fashy zealots. I didn't know that. Like, that's the bad ending for the Brotherhood, is if he dies, the Brotherhood collapses into a non-properly philosophical losing all of its losing all of its tenets and the 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 bad ending of them literally calls them zealots that like get themselves wiped out well that makes sense to me because a lot of (laughs) a lot of his whole deal is just like discipline yeah it's not about training you know if you go up to him and you're like hey i want you to train me he's like well have you already like learned the basics and you're like no. And he's like, well, fuck off. Yeah, I hope you die. I've I've never in my this is my fourth playthrough. I've never gotten a lot out of him, so I would never. I wouldn't even know. Which is, I mean, it speaks to the like uncanny depth of this game. Yeah. It's like very weird. You wouldn't be able to like, given how the rest of the game is, you wouldn't be like, oh, Rhombus, this guy that every dialogue tree is like basically him telling you to fuck off. You wouldn't expect that there's like a lot of complexity here. I just want to take there a is. quick second to sidebar and just really talk about how fucking good the voice cast in this game oh. is. Wait, wait, what were they on? It's so good. I mean, mo- this was really before most of these people had like breakout whatever, but literally it's Clancy Brown, Ron Perlman, Ron Perlman <laughs> uh, God, what's her name? The girl from Kids Next Door who voices... Oh, uh, number five. Yeah, she voices number five, but in this game she voices Bandy. I can't remember her name. I feel bad, but like, really, like all star cast, which is insane to me. Like the the amount of talent that they have for all the talking heads and like voice dialogue in this yeah, game. There, there was no voice dialogue that I found less than like really good. Yeah, they're all like. <laughs> Hats off to the casting department for this game for figuring out the most optimal voices for all these characters. Ron Perlman is a generational talent. The he everything he is in is fucking incredible. It's really crazy. Hey, what's up everybody? It's me Mason dropping back in for the mid-roll ad. Once again, I am sorry to report that there are no advertisers for us, but I still have my fingers crossed that the Frito-Lay Corporation will answer my very aggressive emails. Anyway, until that happens, go ahead and like, share, subscribe, comment, rate five stars, do whatever you can to increase your engagement with us as it helps out a ton. Anyway, I'll throw you back to the episode. So my one moment for this game 
really just has to do with the world building. And it's a my it's a very small thing, but in the hub there is a small restaurant shack called I'm trying to remember the exact name. Maltese Falcon? Igu- no, the Iguana oh. stand. Oh, Iguana Bobs. Iguana, Iguana Bobs. <laughs> so there's a, play, a little place called Iguana Bobs. And if you delve into the basement of the doctors in Junktown, you find out that they are cutting up corpses and sending the meat to Iguana Bobs. <laughs> And so I killed everyone in that medical <laughs> office. <laughs> and then now and this and this is a double-edged sword because unfortunately this quest line isn't finished all the way through. But if you can go back to Iguana Bob and you can be like, "Hey, I know the secrets of the premium meat that you sell." And he's like, "Oh god, oh fuck. Please don't <laughs> please don't tell anyone." <laughs> and you can either choose to blackmail him or report him to the authority. And if you unfortunately if you try to report him to the authority in the hub, he basically just chases around and tries to kill you and you can't really do anything with it. You end up just killing him, which is unfortunate. Like there wasn't anywhere else for it to go. But I just really liked that and it's kinda like the same thing with the hostage situation where there are these like little bits of things, little breadcrumbs for the trail of uh, the players to find if they just happen upon them in their playthrough. It also calls every existence of Iguana Bits in all of Fallout into question. It sure Iguana does. Iguana Bits is <laughs> people. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I just thought that was cool. I just lo- I like, I like a- as weak as I feel like some of the writing is in this game for characters, I do, like, it's moments like that that kept me going as far as just appreciating what they do with the world. I think my one moment has to do with the cathedral towards the end of the game. Well, this it was the last thing I did in the game. There's two sort of final dungeons that you can do in any order. The last I did was the cathedral, which is this large religious institution that's built out of a Catholic church in the game where the church of unity meets and they're sort of following the, the super mutant master and seeing how that place was like so well crafted and like seeing that place, the projector screens on the front that are just like obey like that old Apple commercial with, with Morpheus's face flashing out, not the matrix Morpheus, but the character, the fallout game character, Morpheus who's just a guy in there and then like as you explore this place you find out that the followers of the apocalypse have sent like a double agent to go join this church and um, there's just like this horrible mutant factory that's in the bottom that like only the higher ups really know about but even those people who are the higher ups in this cult are being used by the master who is like, you have to go into this disgusting basement behind a secret door and then like through this old and fight Eldritch horrors. Yeah. Fight these like horrible things. (laughs) And the very first of all. Yeah. Which small aside, small aside, is it not 
insane and like kind of tragic insane and kind of tragic that in this game they like made an entire monster manuals worth of shit for you to fight that all do different things and use different tactics and weapons and have different armor but like 99% of the fights that you fight are in like a nondescript desert square yeah, <laughs> yeah. that stinks well, so no, bad well no i disagree i disagree that's the point i mean yeah because like would it really feel like a wasteland if it wasn't just like ruins of cities and the literal desert I just and caves? I wish more of the map was the Los Angeles like building area because events that are in that area are inherently way cooler because you can like hide behind the buildings and you can like try and kite enemies through it but you know then it's like the hundredth fight that you have in the desert square it's like oh more rad scorpions in the desert square and i you know i get what you're saying like that it's not going to feel desolate if the majority of your time is spent in civilization and the majority of your combat is spent in civilization but just throw a cactus in there just give me something to look sure. at you know just something to break up the the kind of monotony the rad of cactus yeah <laughs> rad cactus <laughs> So yeah, my the the cathedral just sort of beholding the cathedral for the first time, like scrolling around that first level on the map is is really amazing. My first thought of my moment was really weak. It is my favorite written line in the game, and it is when you finish Shady Sands, like you rescue Tandy, and Aradesh, his last line to you is something to the extent of Farewell, my friend, and may the water you find in the desert not shine at you in the dark. That's a good line. Oh, that is such That's a, a good, good line. line. I love that Turner phrase so much. But like, it's just a Turner. It's just like a cool Turner phrase, right? Yeah. But I thought about it more, and my moment is when you're talking to the figurehead for the regulators. What is his name? Fogarty, the the mayor. Yeah, Sam. It's Sam something. His first name's Sam. Ah, so like you're talking to him, right? And he's like, "I want you to wipe out the blades." And like when you dig into it, you figure out he's a weird misogynist guy, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> and like he blames the woman who's the leader of the blades for the death of his son. And when you go talk to the woman who's the leader of the Blades and you confront her about this, she's like, um, yeah, no, here's a holodisc. The regulators killed our son. Dude's kind of crazy. <laughs> but she doesn't really say that. But it's like, I was like, oh, man, that's really cool and interesting. Like, I found that a lot more interesting and compelling of, like, a storyline to think through and figure out than what I thought was the black and white of Gizmo and Killian. When you, yeah, that's that's such a cool reveal because it just drops you into a ditem. And it's like, oh, these are just, like, the cops and that's the mayor. I get it. And then he's like, yeah, go kill the Blades. And you're like, oh, the Blades. I get it. They're a gang. They call themselves the Blades. And when you walk into the Blade, the place is called the Blades because it's like an old razor factory. Yeah. And you walk in and it's just people in desolation 
crowded in a building. They're all like slumped over. Yeah. Some of them are trying to and, sleep. And I'm like, huh. That and you know, I feel like that says a lot about you know, I think in almost every place and even in the hub where the quest apparently wasn't finished because it had to do with equality for ghouls, your theme of meek versus mighty, where like the where in the hub it would have been like the ghouls versus normal humans, yeah, and here like in the boneyard, it's these people with power and armor and weapons who use a figurehead but are effectively a gang blaming another group of people who they have labeled as a gang who are just people struggling to survive. I'm so glad. I'm so glad <laughs> that the way that quest wraps up is you you know you empower these weak people and they liberate. Yeah. They make something right because like I feel like every fictional piece you do, they do like the reverse the power and it's like, Oh, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Now they're going to be bad. I'm so glad that you get to just, you, you know, you get to just like be a liberating force. It was so cool seeing the random folks just like beat the shit out of these regulators in like spiked armor. (laughs) And you're like, Oh, you're going to die, but that's cool. They're like getting clapped, but they're like five on oneing. The yeah, that, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I just i I felt a lot of emotion through that whole thing, and also just the fact that you have to kill three normal death claws and a mother death claw to like <laughs> even begin. That. I hate that fight. I hate that fight so bad. I hate that area. I mean, death claws are cool; they're evocative. I hate the mother death claw. Uh, oh, that's it sucks so. Bad. I uh, you can really see you know where what? the death claws got their well earned <laughs> hatred yeah. in this you know game. What? I'm I'm gonna change my moment to when I critted the mother death claw across the room and nine damage, just like Good, she deserves it. I hate that. I hate that enemy. That is like oh. Yo, you know what would make this really fun? This enemy that has twice as much health as the normal version of this already hard enemy. Let's make the whole let's make the arena dark so you have an accuracy <laughs> penalty. That's so cool and fun. Okay. Also, warning to people who have never played this game before, don't do what I did and make a melee focused character. Not on your first run. On your first Not run. Not on your first run. Don't do it. Just do just be be an energy weapons person. Yeah. The, the 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 efficient way of doing it is going small guns into energy weapons or heavy guns or big guns. Yep. <laughs> There's a reason why this game has what is basically considered solved a yeah. solved build. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> it's not an accident. Years of years of testing. This kind of ties back in to the story I told at the beginning of the episode, right? The mutants are this faction of people. They have a pretty explicitly sort of mutant supremacist philosophy. There is a join or die philosophy. They go around the entire game sort of terrorizing people, 
some people in the sort of southern parts of the map kind of know about them only as like they're like uh the kind of like a chupacabra you know they're like oh this is some people just say it exists and things disappear sometimes but like you know you get into the northern parts of the map and it's like oh yeah these guys are actually like this is no joke they're like here to kill and enslave everyone and you find out that they are they are humans or they previously were humans that have been subjected to a government medical experiment called the forced evolution virus the fev they've been uh like a like a movie dunked into these big vats of green ooze and they come out these like freakish deformed huge strong creatures that are like kind of dull and but they can be like bossed around really easily. And there's this one. Well, they're not all kind of dull. Their whole thing is they're supposedly smarter. Right. But like, because the master isn't being selective with who's being FEV'd. Yeah. You end up with folks like Harry instead of folks like Lieutenant. Exactly. But yeah, this this one person who is known in the game as the master, the super mutant master, ha- has these designs to reconquer the earth as the next step in human evolution, these mutants who are going to take over the world. And it turns out that the central tension of the game, the real antagonist of the game, is not this sort of man versus nature, like find the water chip and save your people. It's like, oh, no, no, there's something much more existential. And it's that one door to the left of your home (laughs) is this army of mutants who are going to fucking march through and kill everyone. And they, it's... The master is such a cool, cool, cool character. And the mutants are such a cool, cool, cool faction. I love them. I actually drew a little bit of a line from this game to Metal Gear Solid, where the essentially if you just replace like the Metal Gears with bioengineered weapons, you kind of get I got like flashes of Metal Gear. I can from, see that from the way that the weapon, that part of the weapons development was described. I can see that. Me. Yeah, and you know, the master conceptually is really interesting. So I didn't get to see any of the, like the developmental lore of because the master is someone who we'll get to name? that. Oh. Richard Gray. Yeah. Or something. Some Um, Mr. Gray. Dr. Gray. So, like, but what I saw of the Master was, like, this very interesting and very human understanding of if we are different, we fight. So, if we make everyone the same, we will no longer fight. This person who sees (laughs) the ghouls, the ghouls and the humans with tension. And the followers and the regulators have tension and the gizmos and the Killians have tension. And he's like, I've, I've got the solution, you know, (laughs) I've got the final. Don't say that. Don't say that next word. All right. Don't say that next word. (laughs) I don't know what you mean. (laughs) Fucking. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to uh, be reductive, but the, the parallels are not insignificant, right? 
he, he runs a very explicitly supremacist philosophy. He's like, we're going to, we're going to turn everyone to mutants or we're going to enslave them. That's the and only way forward for him. Them. Yeah. And, and, and sterilize like them. Well, sterilization. No, no, that's not part of his plan. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Ster- oh, you meant like sterilization and non sterilization non people who don't yeah. want to be mutants okay. yeah, get sure. sterilized. Yeah. Not talking about the mutant thing. <laughs> I, I understand your confusion yeah. there. Good, but the master does explicitly say they would sterilize the people. Well, who they not. Yeah, he, he would force them. For, he would force them to stop breeding. Yeah, yeah. He would let them live, but they're not allowed to breed. I did not like the master interaction i didn't like it you didn't like it you didn't like the uh the the speech solution i did not like the speech solution it reminded me of the ending of the uh it reminded me of dishonored where i took the peaceful the low chaos path and the ending felt very unsatisfying i it's like i get it I understand it. I like that I'm being rewarded for learning things about the lore of the game. Wow, this is really a very anticlimactic, anticlimactic and uninteresting way for this plot thread to end. Yeah, it, I, I like it makes sense. I'm not saying it. It's not logical. It's just like it's not interesting. Yeah, and I get that, but I mean, and I don't want to hand wave that criticism away. But, like, it is an eldritch horror, right? Like, yeah. the master is... Well, he is, he is at his core, human. Mm-hmm. And then he... But, like, he thinks he is doing good. And then, like, from some very dumb oversight, which I don't understand. My problem with the speech solution is how have you not figured this out yet? I think it's because um, it's a very you're kind of there at the genesis of the ah, super mutant faction, okay. right? Because like if, if they're as big and imposing as they are in the game, right? The takeover is like, would be oh, yeah, so you're quick. Right. right? You're right. You're so right. like, and they're just like, all right, we're going to take this military base. We need water. Right. That's the whole reason they're in Necropolis. They don't even have water yet. Right. So I think, I think it's just because the, the wheels are just starting to spin. And here's the, and here's the other thing that, I didn't really I did not like about that interaction and I think this is a broader problem with this game is that I hated the joke when it's like oh well did you ask all the females yeah, about the yeah, sterilization yeah. I was like I get it I it's well, it's it's not unfunny but like there's a lot of moments in this game where I feel like the humor is played at bad moments and it yeah. takes me out of the scene well, I mean, this game is from 1997, right? Like, I think it was trying to make a specific it point, w- it, but but it was doing it in a comedic way that didn't li- like. It's like the same during, way during a, what's supposed to be a tense oh, moment. Yeah, is like right, what you're right, trying to right. say. So, and, okay, and, okay. And there's a there is a, and I can further elaborate on this. And earlier in the game, when you go back to Vault 13 for the first time, and you talk to the overseer, and you're like, "Oh, I think we should let the people out of the vault." He's like. Oh well, what would I do? I would be useless. I'm just oh, yeah. management. I'm like, why that, are you saying that? Why the fuck would you ever say that? That doesn't yeah. make any sense 
from a character perspective well, for a thing to you. Well, like, I I think you're viewing that as like a joke about haha managers don't do anything, which I think is funny. But <laughs> I'm not saying it's not funny. It just doesn't make any sense but for it to be a thing. Here, I though. think in the, in the should, scene, I think you should view it as him having an existential crisis of his his job is vault. What happened Ken? if no vault? <laughs> no, I, I think Buck brings up a very good point here. Like, the overseer is, you know, in his late 50s, 60s, maybe. And without the vault, like, what is he going to do that is he, going to be any kind of useful? He is not prepared to... He he fears he is not prepared to survive in that's the That's great. Right? And I'm, I, that's probably fine. Say it in a way that makes fucking sense in character. Because the way he says it just comes across as a joke. Yeah. That was, like, a big problem with my way that the characters were written in this game is, like... I want the I want the serious and grounded moments to like be played more straight and like let the comedy ride in the fact that Iguana Bob is selling people. <laughs> yeah. You know? So like, there's plenty of other spaces for you to have comedy and they and they really do capitalize on it in a lot of good moments. I don't think it lands when they try to drop it into these like more tense scenes. So let me let me talk about this this speech sort of ending with the master, right? Because I think it makes a lot of sense in the context of this is a 10-hour game. And most people are not, at least in 1997, not following a guide, right? So you play your first playthrough, right? Maybe you don't take speech. Maybe you do. You get all the way to the end and you're looking for a final boss battle. So you're like, you get to the master and you're like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And you kill him real good, right? You get your second playthrough and you're like, all right, speech time. I'm going to be a speech boy. We're going to do speech. Okay. You get to the master and you're like, all right, I'm talking him down. And the master is like, no, fuck you. No, I'm not. What do you, would you think you're going to talk me out of this? Absolutely not. And then he attacks you. And then on your third playthrough or some playthrough afterwards, you get all the way to the bottom of the glow and which you you know couldn't do in your earlier playthroughs because the thing that you needed while you were there was just on the first floor and the glow is really dangerous. And then you uh, spend the time talking to Vri in the in the Brotherhood, even though she's not the one who has the power armor or all the ammunition or all the, any of the quests. And you're like, oh, she had okay. So I have this information from the glow, and I have this information from Vri. I know that the super mutants are, are just gonna work themselves out eventually. Now I have proof. I have something that I can like show the master and you get to him and you're like, look, I can show you evidence. I've like, I didn't just like talk you down from this. Cause that would be stupid. Like what would be the point of that? I have, I've shown you that your plan's not going to work. And then like, there's this like this satisfying thing. Like you've not, you, you didn't just like talk the master down. You've like truly mastered like the world of fallout. You've truly like learned something, learned how to play the game. And it's like, it was probably awesome in 1997. <laughs> yeah. And like, what's very funny is like the guy content for this game is still bad. Like there's still like missing quest information. There's like missing glitch information. Like the wiki's incomplete with like items in places. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's another like quite 
funny thing. But uh, to speak to your point, yeah, I see it a lot more that way. Like, I did the speech solution because I vaguely knew the speech solution because I feel like I've watched, like, four video essays on Fallout, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, which, like, I didn't remember it at the time. I just did the thing. I did the things I would, like, reflexively do anyway. And I was like, oh, hey. Mutants are sterile. That's interesting and cool. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I knew that already. But you know, yeah. Part of it was I, just I don't, that, I don't like, think you're. I don't think you're wrong. I'll yeah. say that. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're wrong. I think that perspective kind of shifts how that information, how we should think about that information. But I think that like, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that even on a first playthrough, that like the the confrontation with the final boss of the game should be like a climax yeah well i guess part of it is isn't even like that i felt i think part of it is just like you don't even it doesn't even take that much talking to talk him down off of it right it's maybe like eight lines of dialogue yeah Uh, i don't know it's just like doesn't it doesn't sound like a lot now, but yeah. in 1997, yeah, it was. sure. Like when you're talking about like adventure games with choices, that was actually a lot in 1997. But I think part of this is tied into the problem of the ask me about system, where a lot of the dialogue and space for this game got wrapped up in having to like code all this extra stuff for people who have specific interactions with specific phrases uh and as a result of that maybe they didn't have as much space to do more dialogue for these bigger characters i i would have liked to talk to the master more i, I do think you don't get to talk to the master. you don't enough. get to talk to him very much even if you even in whatever you know, regardless of what route you take with him you really don't get a big opportunity which is why the logs you find at the military base end up being so important because they give a lot more context to the master and to the brotherhood of steel. Can I tell y'all what I don't like about the master design? No, I think the fight's cool. I I think the fight's cool. I think the design is cool. The thing I think sucks so massively about the master and really takes away a lot for me is the master is on the fourth floor of the dungeon he's in right on the third floor there's this little room off to the side and the game is like by the way psychic people exist go ahead and here's some psychic people and they're all like crazy because they can't fucking figure out why they're psychic and it's like a cool little world building moment if you if you talk to one of the scientists you find out it's from them injecting fed directly into their brain yeah but they're like, oh, yeah, there's uh, psychic people now. Just yeah. go ahead and adjust to that. And then right before the master, you walk down this like long hallway that is called the Hallway of Horrors. And if you didn't interact with the, the crazy people, you get a way cooler walk down the Hallway of Horrors where it's like you see the face of a dead uh, companion. You know, you see like dog meat's face and it like comes out of the wall and you see like blood and sinew dripping from metal where it shouldn't be. And then like you keep walking down the hallway and then it's like you lose a point of luck permanently. 
You lose a point of intelligence permanently. You lose a point of perception permanently. I'm like, come on. Keep doing the hallway of horror thing. This isn't the hallway of horror. This is the hallway of my specials going down. <laughs> this is supposed to be the hallway of horror. Yeah. I'm being attacked psychically, and my brain is like melting in my skull. If I, you know, it's like, it's like you introduce this, like, oh, uh, uh, like right in the last five pages of the book. Oh, and there's psychic people, and the master's psychic, and he's going to attack you with the psychic powers right before you get up there. Okay, go. It's like, that's <laughs> yeah. not, that's, come on. Yeah. What is going on here? <laughs> so let's talk about the logs. Let's talk I know about Buck, the logs. I know, Buck, you haven't read them, question mark. Okay, so there's two logs you get in the military base that add a f- lot of context to everything. The first one you find, and I'm actually gonna look. Did you sure. get the Did you get the glow ones too? Maybe. There's a lot of There's a lot of good info in the glow. Yeah, as well. So one of them's from Richard Gray, who is a person that works at the military base, and basically him and a few of his coworkers get knocked into a vat of the forced mute, uh, forced evolutionary virus by a crane and he is the only one that survives and he goes through this he journals his way through this really long mutation process where at the end he becomes the master and he talks about like literally consuming whole beings whole and like they're joining their minds with his and you know how like things have really low intelligence and like they don't suit like joining a part of his body or joining a part of his consciousness and it's really what i really like about it is that at a point within the journal entries he goes from using i pronouns to we to signify that he has become a multiple a being of multiple entities, essentially. Yeah. It's it, if you haven't seen it, I definitely go re- recommend going and reading it. But it it was really cool to see. But at the same time, I was left to like try to figure out where what happened, where he went from trying to assimilate everyone into himself to. Oh, I'm just I'm going to create a race of people that will be harmonious well, with And like that's what he does with the people who aren't smart enough to join him. Yeah. Yeah. Is <laughs> he turns them in. That's why the that's why a lot of the mutants are stupid, I think. Is they're the, not good enough to join yeah. join the unity. Which it it also like that log contextualizes a lot of the master's voice performance, which is masterful and super evocative in its own right. And then like you read that log, and then you're like, oh, why does it, why is there this like random woman's voice that echoes everything he says? Like, oh, because there's like a woman in there, yeah, who's just also saying these things because that's not a guy. That's like a hundred super smart scientists, yeah. like in- inhabiting this like weird melted body. Do you remember the name of the person of the other log? Uh, it's it's the it's either the father or the grandfather of the current leader of the Brotherhood of Steel, and he was he basically figured out what was going on with the FEV, and he was so horrified that he basically just took over the military base and started interrogating and killing all the scientists 
because he genuinely could not he thought the scientists were at fault he thought the scientists were to blame for the experiments that were going on there he could not accept the fact that the united states government would have ordered these scientists to do this research and so he blames the scientists themselves that they were like going rogue and like doing their own experiments essentially and he had to come to terms with the fact that the government was the one that was behind all of this and the last thing he does before he leaves the military base is he forces his men to like give a f- proper funeral and burial to all the scientists they end up killing and that is the person that ends up founding the Brotherhood of Steel. And that's why the Brotherhood of Steel is the way that they are. Why they're so protective of all of this like technology and information and why they're so insular as a group is because the philosophy that they're founded on is that governments and entities can't be trusted with force and with power. So they have to protect it from getting into the hands of people that don't deserve it. It's so, it's like, uh, you know, the, that type of tragic irony that's like so hard, so challenging in a game, but like it's so beautiful at yeah. the same time. I love, I love the logs in this game. Those, those two to me stuck out more than like any of the other stuff in the game just because of how much in, in, you know, the, the master's log is like four pages and the other one is like three pages but like in those logs you learn so much about the context of the world and the reason why two of these very big factions are the way they are and man i would just really wish that some of this stuff could be disseminated through character work instead of just reading a bunch of exposition because the ex- the world building is amazing and the like the, the things that they have created are phenomenal but I want them to be disseminated in a way that is more readily available or more like interesting to look at and interesting to read. Imagine if you could have learned some of that stuff about the master from the master. Yeah, it would be yeah, cool. It would be so much better. <laughs> or like even just like getting like glimmers of it, right? Like maybe the maybe it's gr- that Gray's personality is like trying to fight through all of the other stuff that's going on in this like mass of psychic or mental energy, you know, I don't know it. And like the, and I'm talking through a lens as if like this game were to be made today. Right. Like obviously for 1997, this game is, you know, a, a monolith of basically a a magnum of what they can do could be. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want it to feel like I'm talking down about what this game is, but I do think it's interesting and we've done this with another old, a number of other old games on this podcast is just like pondering the possibilities of like what it could be like if it was made today. It was, it's wonderful. So with the master defeated the military base and the cathedral exploded, the vault dweller heads back home to finally, finally with all the threats neutralized, a source of uh, clean, renewable water, you are able to return and get back to the life that you have fought so hard and overcome so many mountainous threats for just for the overseer to meet you at the door and say, I'm so sorry, but if we have you here and people hear 
the fables of how you went into the wasteland and conquer it, they're going to think they can do it too. So you, you just have to leave. So like after all of that, your character can't even be granted a happy ending. Yeah. Can't even go home. And like, what a gut punch, (laughs) what a bow on, on this absolute gift of a story. Uh, Fuck the overseer. All my homies hate the overseer. Yeah, true. So do you want to know the actual canon things that happen after this? Sure. Yeah. Uh, So what happens is, I don't remember what this is in, but I'm pretty sure this is 100% canon. The folks of Vault 13 are like, hey, overseer, where's our homie? He's like, oh, he's gone. And they put him on trial and execute him for sending you away and banishing you. Good. And they start Good. leaving the vault anyway. Good. Because Good. because they couldn't because the legend couldn't be stopped even if you weren't there. Yeah, like what did they think was gonna happen? Because like it's not like you didn't it's not like you didn't show back up at some point with this marvel of technology that immediately solves one of the biggest problems I've ever faced. Like And like the overseer wasn't the only one who knew about the mutant problem, right? Yeah. He he the overseer himself is sitting in a laboratory with like 10 other scientists. It's not like he was like, oh, I um, I figured out this whole mutant thing here by myself <laughs> with no help. Like, surely <laughs> he didn't think that that was going to happen. Like, and everyone was just going to be gonna like, work out for yeah, him. okay. Well, it's interesting because so for a little bit of additional prep for this game, I did something that Mason might get upset with me for, but I played like the first couple hours of Fallout Four. <laughs> just just to like kind of see where the the series has gone and I knew we were unlikely to cover that game specifically for the podcast. Oh man. I and I'll be dead before I cover I, a Bethesda game on this fucking podcast. God, Fallout Four's power armor has energy use. When you pick up po- power armor in Fallout One it says it has power to last it for hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, yeah, but like, you know, regardless. Well, and it. T- no, I won't get into it because we're not talking about Fallout Four. But I, the the difference in, I think the biggest difference for me is that you start Fallout 4 and it doesn't feel lonely because the literally the first thing you do is meet the free or meet the Minutemen, like it, like there's no sense of like the isolation, the desolation, yeah, from the past, past. from two hundred years ago, and it's just like, I think the, if nothing else, if you discount so much else that Fallout does, it really makes you feel alone in a way, because like even the people you meet, even the people you talk to. Like the first people you meet, just like don't believe you, think you're a big liar, think you're just making shit up. And yeah, you meet Ian, and Ian's willing to like go help you, but like he's just like very aloof and like he's like there for the money. Yeah, he's just in it for like the glory and the you know you only able you're only able to bring him with you if you pay him or promise him like a part of the loot that you find. And it's like I just don't. It was amazing, like the stark, the stark difference between how isolated I felt at the beginning of Fallout One. Now, I, how like companioned you felt at the beginning of Fallout Four? It's well, Bethesda games nowadays are 
more akin to theme parks than they are video games. And I think that's a huge, I'm not going to get into Bethesda. <laughs> I'll be, we'll be here all day. We'll run out of battery on the recorder. Yeah. Good. I, I, I did not like fallout one as a game, but I at least appreciated it as an experience. I think fallout one is a 10 out of 10 game that has four points in deductions. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think Fallout 1 has the skeleton of a perfect game and has the body of a fine game. Yeah, uh, I, I I agree with what Mason said. I I honest, like I don't want to say I think the best way to experience Fallout 1 is to not play it and just learn everything about it. But like I I played this whole thing. I played for 22 hours and like I I am done. <laughs> if fallout was a book it would be a really good book yeah <laughs> that'd I, be okay i will say uh listeners if you're super interested in playing fallout one number one if you want to disregard the piece of advice i'm about to give please download the fallout fixed mod it restores a lot of cut content and makes the game playable in a lot of ways that it isn't because a lot of games that were programmed for windows dos do not understand Windows 11 very well. The second thing I would recommend, and I'll talk to y'all after the podcast about this, if you want to play Fallout 1, start with Fallout 2 and see if you like it. <laughs> Fallout 2 is a upgrade to Fallout 1 in every single conceivable way, uh, including, I think, and I'm, I'm not going to promise because I can't really remember, I think every single way that we've criticized Fallout 1 here on this episode fallout 2 is just like strictly better anyway what is our next episode so next episode we're going to be covering kentucky route zero available where uh i think it's just pc right now i think it's just pc as far as i'm aware it might be on xbox but it's very limited it was an episodic release so i know that they spent a lot of time in development for the game so fantastic i'm very i'm really excited for that one